I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Actually, this is the Jackpod, where On Point news analyst Jack Beatty helps us connect history, literature, and politics in a way that brings unique clarity to the world we live in now. So hello there, Jack. Hello, Meghna. And all of a sudden, we're at episode seven, which is remarkable. I would say episode seven of an infinite number going forward into the future. But what's today's headline for you? Well, today's headline is the word pathologize, uh, defined by the Oxford Dictionary as, quote, to regard or treat someone as psychologically abnormal or unhealthy. In short, psychiatric name calling. Uh It's figuring in this campaign, both with Trump, Trump, you know, casually and not so casually called crazy and Biden called uh, senile. Mm. Uh, so it's 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 uh, it's playing a role in this campaign for sure, yeah. and we're going to hear more about it. Okay, so I, actually, I'm glad you said that you're going to focus specifically on uh, on Trump and Biden because I can think of a lot of pathologies in American politics right now. Um, but is there a reason why you you pick this in particular? Has it uh, been an issue in in uh, in American history in the past? Oh, indeed. Uh, Psychiatric name-calling has a very dubious history in presidential politics. Just to skim the surface, in 1896, uh, uh, William Jennings Bryan, the New York Times, uh, asserted that he was uh, uh, insane, uh, and uh, and over a headline, a two-column interview with alienists, that is, the psychiatrist of the day, uh, it re- it ran the headline about tr- Brian paranoid or matoid. Matoid means degenerate, which should remind us of the mutability of psychiatric terminology mm-hmm. over the years. That one's gone. So that was a, a, a case of using psychiatry in such as it was to invalidate a candidate. Uh, another case, and in some ways even worse was the Freud book on Woodrow Wilson. He wrote a book with uh, an American diplomat, William Bullitt, called Thomas Woodrow Wilson, A Psychological Study. They, Bullitt and Freud worked on it in the 30s. It was only published in 1967 to immense uh, uh, controversy because it was a caricature of the worst of psychoanalytic thought and and an unrelenting slander, as someone uh, called it, upon a gifted American president. It portrayed Wilson as a homosexual with a killer Oedipus complex. Even to read it today, you're embarrassed for the reductivism involved. Uh, Actually, Jack, can I just up here for a second? I'm so sorry. I'm embarrassed to say I never knew that Sigmund Freud co-authored a book on Woodrow Wilson. Yes. What made that? Yeah, go ahead. Well, he resented Wilson powerfully for breaking up or being instrumental in the breaking up of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, of which Vienna had been the capital. And uh, Freud, when war broke out in 1914, he said, all my libido is with (laughs) Austria-Hungary. So his libido didn't change. And he greatly resented Wilson. And also he resented, he thought Wilson's... uh, Religiosity was um, was was a primitive uh, mental uh, formulation, oh rather God. than a. <laughs> anyway, oh, but, so, well, uh, I just have to say, for everyone who's a fan of the jackpot, and even if you're, this is the first episode you've ever heard. Right there is an example of why this has to be regular Friday listening to you, because you will always have your mind blown by 
something you never knew before. Jack will guarantee that. Okay. Sorry, Jack. I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but wow, Freud on Wilson. Never thought I'd see more, the day. Go ahead. Yeah. And one more and, and, and more consequential example, Barry Goldwater. Mm-hmm. You know, in in 1964, there was a, there was a uh, sort of popular culture line that went, in your guts, you know he's nuts. <laughs> but a, a Fact magazine uh, impaneled a thousand psychiatrists to comment on, you know, sort of give the dignified, the professional version of that uh, aphorism. And these psychiatrists, you know, came out with, they basically thought he was totally unfit, that he was mentally imbalanced, that he was a, quote, latent homosexual, that he, he showed grave features of, quote, anality. And it went on in that, uh, in that Freudian way. And, of course, this was at the high tide of Freudianism in America when no cigar was just a cigar. So uh, it, it was a terrible moment for psychiatry. Uh, Goldwater sued the magazine, fact, and won a, a libel judgment against them. And the American Psychiatric Association reacted to this with what they called the Goldwater Rule, basically saying it is unethical for psychiatrists to opine about public figures if they have not had personal, you know, medical uh-huh. psychiatric examinations of them. And the, and the, uh, the uh, Goldwater rule really held up quite strongly just until the, the, the beginning of the Trump administration. Right. I would actually say it uh, held up in terms of the ongoing, or at least at that time, reluctance of most uh, psychiatrists, uh, especially the ones who represent the uh, the APA in terms of what they were willing to say about Trump. But that actually brings us to the first of two contemporary examples that you wanted to talk about. How do you see this uh, uh, psychiatric name-calling having been demonstrated with Trump or by Trump? Because by Trump, I definitely, I mean, he, he's he's a champion of coming up with yes. horrible names deranged. for people. Yeah, but <laughs> you're talking about deranged. a psychiatric name calling about him? Yes, yes. As I mentioned, um, the Goldwater rule, which is psychiatrists can't pronounce unless they have a personal, uh, done a personal examination, and then only with the patient's uh, consent. Uh, early in, 19, in, in in 2017, there was a there was a book published based on a symposium at Yale called "The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump," and it was a symposium of psychiatrists and mental health workers, basically sh- showing how his quote, uh, uh, you know, narcissistic rage threatens was a threat to the republic. Looks awfully prophetic now. Uh, and a uh, couple of years later, 350 psychiatrists signed a memo to the Congress saying, this guy is dangerous. Listen to us and we'll tell you, you know, what to watch out for him. And words were thrown around like, you know, narciss- malignant narcissism and the like. Uh, it turns out that one of the people who was influenced by this book and this this sort of renegade group of psychiatrists who seemed to violate the Goldwater rule. They said, we're not violating it. We're, we're, we're uh, honoring a higher uh, obligation to warn the public and that, and, and that that was a higher medical uh, obligation. Uh, but one person who read the book and tried to use it 
was none other than John Kelly, hmm. the president's uh, chief of staff, his longest serving chief of staff. And he used that book to try to understand Trump and to steer around his various uh, psychological issues. But General Kelly has also left us just recently with another look at Trump and another way of looking at political character that does not involve uh, you know, psychiatric name calling, just facts and moral judgment, something we all do. It's a, it's a fairly long passage, but it is one for the ages. He's describing Donald Trump, and this is in the, just after it came out that Trump had uh, seemed to call uh, for the execution of General Milley for uh, the, the retiring chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for, um, you know, for treason. It, Trump had just said that. And anyway, CNN asked Jack, Kelly actually, what can I thought. just interrupt you here for a second? Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't, I definitely want you to read the, the Kelly quote here, but in case people have forgotten already because the news is hitting us at hurricane force, Trump had mentioned that in, uh, in times past, uh, actions taken by, by Milley would have been considered treasonous. But I just want to clarify mm -hmm. that it's because after January 6, 2021, and the attack on Congress, um, mm -hmm. Mark Milley made a phone call to uh, the Chinese government to assure them of the United States' stability as yes. a functioning democracy. That call was made with a, with approval of the Trump administration. Just want to be sure we all everyone understands the facts here. Um, and uh, but that didn't stop Donald Trump from railing as he did about Milley, as you just pointed out. But just wanted to say that. Then yes. go ahead, Great. tell us what uh, what uh, John Kelly wrote about Trump. Here's an example of fact and moral judgment. He's talking about Trump. He said, what can I add to what has already been said? He says, a person that thinks those who defend the country in uniform or are shot down or seriously wounded in combat are suckers because, quote, there is nothing in it for them. A person who did not want to be seen in the presence of military amputees because, quote, it doesn't look good for me. A person that has no idea what America stands for. A person who cavalierly suggests that a selfless warrior who served his country for 40 years should lose his life for treason. A person who admires autocrats and murderous dictators. A person that has nothing but contempt for our democratic institutions, our constitution, and the rule of law, said General Kelly. And he ended, there is nothing more that can be said. God help us. Mm. God help us indeed. Mm. Now, Jack, um, just a little point of clarification here, because you began with those really, um, like you said, dubious moments in history where the psychiatric name calling was used. Is the Trump example, um, I, I don't think that it falls into, you're not saying that it falls into that same dubious category. Oh, right? no. Yeah. Well, I, I'm saying that the, that the, you know, the sort of, as it were, renegade psychiatrists who wrote the, wrote the book and who have been, you know, calling, calling him names, as it were, and saying, look, we have to warn the public about him. They have been violating it because they've been violating the Goldwater rule. Uh -huh. they, they haven't. They haven't, they haven't spoken to him. They don't know what makes him tick. As someone, as a, as a critical psychiatrist said, look, 
Trump, Trump is bad. He's not mad. And, and that's, the, that's the point. General Kelly points out how bad the man is, not ah, how mad he is. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. That, that makes, it, it was making sense to me before, but now I can, ver- I can see the, the bright connection here. Okay. So you said you also wanted to talk about how this uh, psychiatric name-calling is being used on our current president, Joe Biden. Yes, uh, he's just routinely on Fox News and in right-wing commentary, it's asserted as fact that he has, quote, dementia, as sometimes it's said to be Alzheimer's. Now, you, you have to ask yourself, suppose he had such a, a, a diagnosis, what kind of a monster would go along with continuing to be president knowing he had a terminal disease that would rob him daily of his, of his selfhood, of his identity, of who he is. Only a monster would do that. And there's no evidence that this man is a monster. So it's a, it's a, it's a baseless charge that basically is trying to describe a man who's old and who manifests the, you know, the problems of aging, uh, forgetting names, verbal gaffes, uh, stiff gait, all the rest. But there is no evidence in, for, for, for dementia, and I would argue even, um, even uh, you know, uh, evidence for the opposite. But, you know, just as that we had a petition from 350 psychiatrists to the Democrats saying, watch out for this guy, he's losing it about Trump. So we had a petition from 54 House representatives urging Biden to take a mental competency, competency test and appending a list of Alzheimer's symptoms and saying, Joe, this sounds awfully like you. There was pathologizing at its, uh, at its worst. Okay. Can I just go back to something you said uh, a little earlier about if, who would stay in office if they knew that they were suffering from a disease that would rob them of their, their intellect, their, their personality, their moral core? I've got to ask, Jack, what, weren't those same questions going on about former President Ronald Reagan, right? Because he was, uh, he was officially diagnosed with Alzheimer's about five years after he left office. But there's been a lot of uh, you know, uh, stories and, and reporting about uh, whether questions existed before Reagan even left office. You remember what was it? Obviously, his testimony during Iran-Contra in 1990, where he said he couldn't remember, didn't recall yes, a bunch of things. Yes. And then I think um, even during one, uh, the 84 presidential debate, some, some folks were wondering if he you know, didn't actually have a, as full a grasp of um, uh, of the present as he could have. And I, I'm not, I, honestly, I'm, I did not remember all these moments uh, just off the top of my head. I looked it up just now. And uh, Leslie Stahl from CBS News, she wrote a, a memoir in 2000 called Reporting Live. And in it, she has this story about visiting Reagan in 1986. And she said, Reagan didn't seem to know who I was. He gave me a distant look with those milky eyes and shook my hand weakly. Oh, my, he's gonzo, she thought. So, I mean, is that mm-hmm. a—it just came to mind about, about Reagan. And I wonder what you think. Well, that's such a good uh, counterexample. You know, perhaps let's let's entertain the hypothesis that one of the um, one of the marks of uh, senility, dementia, Alzheimer's—call it what you will 
is that people aren't really aware that they have it. You know, they just mm -hmm. kind of go on, and until they're officially diagnosed, it's they're just slipping. And and it may even be that uh, uh, they read their you know their their aging as just the natural course of things rather than a uh, a full blown uh, disease. That might have been been the effect there, and maybe something like that is going on with Biden. But again, he shows no such signs as you were just instancing about uh, uh, about, about Reagan uh, mm -hmm. and and. I just, I, 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 and and we know that Reagan was not diagnosed while he was in the uh, the White House. That's right. That <laughs> diagnosis came about five or six years later, four four or five years yeah. later. But yeah. and I, you I, know, to to older people, that is so important. If you don't have that diagnosis, oh great, I'm home free. I'm just forgetting the where my keys are. Once that diagnosis is given, you're just lost. Yeah. Can I just take us off track a little bit, Jack, and then I'll, I'll let you um, uh, kind of pull all these strands together. But uh, I do take your point about, especially when it comes it comes to, um, uh, let's call it illnesses, uh, not mental illnesses, but um, neurological uh, uh, and um, and memory illnesses, that uh, it's, you know, in part, we all get a little forgetful as we age. I haven't even entered my 50s, and I'm already feeling that. So there's, there's, there's this um, sort of delicate balance between um, realizing or wondering if something is amiss versus just honoring the processes of getting older. But that balance, is it seems to me, it's going to be harder and harder to strike uh, when it comes to American politics because we just have older and older people running and staying in office. So, I, I mean, this isn't about this particular moment, but it seems to me that we're going to be asking these kinds of questions of politicians perhaps more frequently in the future. Indeed. And, you know, Nikki Haley, one of her presidential, one of her planks, one of the things she's running on is to have mental competency tests for all politicians, all public servants over 75 federal officials. And a term limits uh, for congressmen just based on the assumption that they'll, you know, wear out their faculties if they stay too long. So that shows you how, uh, how yeah, it's moved to the forefront of, of presidential politics. Yeah. And that, that's a good, you know, a good faith reading of how to measure uh, a person's capacity to lead, which is different than what you've been outlining to us about just the political tool of calling people names based on, you know, their perceived mental uh, uh, fitness. So in thinking about this moment now and this week in particular, Jack, when President Biden has actually been very, very active, right, traveling to to the Middle East, making several uh, quite uh, significant speeches. How does that play into, you know, your analysis of the efficacy, if if any, of this psychiatric name calling? Well, I think we saw something about President Biden's leadership this week This week, that's very, I, I find it very heartening. Uh, and uh, if I may, I'll just quote a sentence from Frank Foer's biography now of, 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 of Biden that's just been out about the first two years of the Biden administration. He says, Biden has lived through enough history to be able to effectively navigate his way through it. Yes, his gait is halting his speech labored, 
but he's acquired wisdom that is hard to replicate. And I think his speech in Israel showed wisdom. Richard Haas, who longtime foreign policy advisor to Republican presidents, said the speech was, quote, nothing less than masterful in the balance it struck between su support for Israel and hard advice for Israel about civilian casualties, about going too far, about acting out of rage. Uh, and, and that balance was perfect. And I want to suggest that balance is perhaps the key to uh, Biden in foreign policy. There's, a, there's an article uh, in the current New Yorker about Ukraine and about uh, the, the pre president and their national security advisor, uh, how they have acted with Sullivan's uh, toward Ukraine. And it comes out, really, that, uh, I'll, that, the, that the administration seems to recognize, this is quoting from somebody describing them, quote, that the war is not going anywhere, that they are fighting a war they can't afford either to win or lose, mm. can't afford to win. For example, if, um, if, if uh, Ukraine says, we've got to get back Crimea, can't afford that because that might trigger a nuclear exchange. We've had a general on our program who was a military attache in, uh, in Moscow for some years, he said Soviet media is priming people to think about the use of nuclear weapons. And the Biden administration does not want Ukraine to force the world into a position where, where the humiliated uh, Putin reaches for nuclear weapons. I call that a sense of exquisite balance because the world is balanced on that moment. Hence, the administration has been slow to supply weapons, as if they're testing how far will Putin go on this. They have made clear they don't want to, uh, you know, they don't want any weapon that would strike inside of Russia. And Biden is quoted as saying to uh, President Zelensky, you'd like nothing better than for America to get into World War III with Russia. Mm. Well, that may be tough to Zelensky, but that's the danger of Ukraine to the planet right now. Hmm. Okay. Well, I want to invite Jack's fans and the few people who are not your fans, but who listen to the jackpot every week, to, as always, send us your thoughts about what you heard in this episode. And specifically, I'd like to hear what you think about, um, you know, the contemporary use and, and historic use, the dubious history, as Jack put it, about the use of psychiatric name-calling uh, in American politics. Are there other examples we should think of? And, you know, what's your reaction when you hear those kinds of things? Uh, do they do they change your view of the person that those uh, those attacks are are uh, are aimed against or not? Because Jack is absolutely right. We've actually heard so much of it over time. that I think we're becoming a little inured to how this uh, tool is used in American politics. So anyway, you can go to the On Point Vox Pop app. If you don't already have it, just look for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps and let us know what you think about psychiatric name calling in American politics. Now, Jack, you know, I always ask people to send us these thoughts about your analysis, but they also, Jack, 
send us praise for you, like these listeners did. I'm a longtime On Point listener. I've always looked forward to the times you have Mr. Beatty on the program, but these Jack Beatty podcasts are the absolute best. Jack has always been my favorite commenter and analyst in any interview he's ever been a part of on on point over many years. My vocab improves each week. The Oxford dictionaries must pick defenestrated, defenestrated as word of the year. His insight, his good humor, his, I guess, ability to portray sometimes complicated subjects in ways that average listeners can more readily appreciate the fine points of the issue is a great skill and one that on point is wise to capitalize on. Come on, Jack. Admit it. You know they're right. Come on, Jack. (laughs) That is, I I just want to thank those folks so much. I mean, that is so, it is too generous, uh, but uh, lovely to hear. And uh, uh, thank you. Thank you for, for, (laughs) thank them for for saying it and you for for running it. Oh, well, okay. First of all, I, I want to give folks a little bit of a inside view of On Point because I have had the privilege of knowing Jack for, Jack, is it 20 years now? Probably something like that. Um, And there are many, many things about him that are rock solid consistent. And one of them is that he is the smartest person I know or one of the smartest people I know. And whenever anybody says that about about Jack to Jack, he blushes like crazy, Jack. Did you know you do that? I mean, you're so <laughs> humble that you just don't even realize your face is betraying all this embarrassment. Oh, God. <laughs> but it is, a, it is so charming and so touching, and all of those listeners are exactly right. So we had to play that. And um, it's more evidence that we definitely listen to every message that's sent to us, and we got a lot. Uh, regarding last week's episode about cacistocracy. So we just have to take a quick break and we'll get to those listener thoughts in a moment. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. Okay, we're back. Jack, another week of a lot of really interesting responses to the previous week's episode where you described to us cacistocracy or 
government by the worst. And you outlined the reasons to uh, fear a potential cacistocracy if Donald Trump is reelected to the presidency. So let's hear uh, what some folks had to say about that. This is Catherine May from Tallahassee, Florida. I think that what Mr. Beebe was saying, what Donald Trump is going to do, I believe that that's what he's going to do that Jared Kushner will be appointed the head of the Federal Reserve or something like that. You will just have hacks and cronies running the government. So Catherine also wanted to share something more specific. She has a very particular frustration that a cacistocracy may be possible because of her fellow Democrats. The people who are complaining about Biden, I, I guess I just don't understand their way of thinking. I will vote for Biden over Trump any day, but I just get the feeling that Democrats just seem to be lackluster, that all the momentum is with Republicans and the MAGA folks, because they are very angry and resentful and much more motivated to vote. Okay. Mr. Beatty, what do you think about Catherine's comments? Uh, well, Catherine, thank you for calling in. And my gosh, yeah, Jared Kushner at the Fed, Sean Hannity at Homeland Security, the pillow guy as, <laughs> as head of Secretary, Secretary of Health and Human Services. You can see it now. Your fear, Catherine, that the GOP voters are more motivated is borne out by a recent just this month poll, NPR, PBS poll, it shows that uh, 43% of Republicans are, quote, very satisfied with Trump as nominee compared to only 30% of Democrats who are very satisfied with Biden. That bears out your fear that Republicans are, uh, are more enthusiastic about their man than Democrats are about theirs. Wow. Okay. Well, here's a couple of more. Uh, Howard Turner He's from Elkhart, Indiana, and he's definitely a jackpot listener because this is the second time that Howard has uh, left us a, a message uh, giving his responses to what you say, Jack. Uh, and this time he says he thinks the, the country has already seen Trump attempt a government of the worst because Howard says just look at his first term. He just didn't know how to do it. Now I think he does know how to do it, which makes it all the worse. Unfortunately, living in Indiana, he will more than likely win this state, probably even win the city I live in, Elkhart, even though we have a bunch of elected Democrats. It scares me a, a lot, and I, I don't know what I could do to make it happen or not happen. Okay, and here's another one. This is James Utt, and he sent us a message from Minneapolis, Minnesota. It very much is possible that a cacistocracy could come into power if Donald Trump is the next president. Moreover, I think it's quite likely that that will happen. Pause to seriously consider the risks to the future of this nation if the American electorate is foolish enough, unwise enough, and careless enough to reelect Donald Trump to the office of president. So talk to me about that, Jack, because... I'm pretty sure Howard and James's thoughts are echoed in the minds of many Americans that wasn't there evidence enough in Trump's first term. 
Oh, indeed. Uh, there was plenty of evidence, not only of his own incompetence. Uh, how about drinking some Lysol, you know, <laughs> bleach or whatever it was? To, uh, to rid yourself of COVID. Yeah, that's right. There you go. I mean, but, you know, we look at the look at the government. You had Ryan Zinke at Interior. He had to leave under a cloud. Scott Pruitt at EPA. He had to leave under a crowd, cloud. Tom Price at HHS. He had to go out under on a scandal. Betsy DeVos at education. She was an anti-education uh, secretary. So even in term one, when he hadn't, you know, worked out his campaign against the deep state bureaucrats, he had some real palookas in there. Uh, and that is, is uh, it seems to me, rehearsal enough for the for the bad actors we'd get in uh, likely get in a, in, a, in a second term. But, you know, James's feeling and also the feeling that, that Howard expressed of helplessness is, is I think, uh, before this inexorability of Trump getting the Republican nomination. It seems unbelievable to so many people sort of who are outside of the Trump bubble. We almost want to say outside of the, of the Trump cult and, you know, with, uh, with Butch Cassidy, we want to say, who are those guys? Who are the people who, are, who might be foolish enough, to quote James, unwise enough and careless enough to elect this twice impeached, uh, four times indicted uh, pres- uh, man president? Mm, I-, I totally hear what you're saying, Jack. But they're not the other, right? They are fellow Americans. We are all fellow Americans to each other. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why there's so much um, mistrust and and confusion as people sort of try to understand each other over the the garden fence there. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, what can we do? I I suppose we can try to reach out and talk to people and find the common ground. you know, uh, as the South was slipping away from from the Union, uh, Lincoln called on the. You know, he said uh, he talked about the. You know, the the sense of a country forged over patriot graves, and he said, "And someday, you know, the better angels of our nature will return, and we'll knit up together again. Maybe the better angels are waiting in the wings, and will appear soon." Mm. Well, we've got two more uh, in terms of responses to the last week's pod. This is Susie Gordon. She's from Redlands, California. You actually heard her a little bit earlier uh, when she was saying that uh, her vocabulary improves every week because of uh, listening to you and how she loved defenestrated. Well, Susie, I know you listened carefully because this week Jack gave you another one, matoid which I'd never heard of either. But she uh, wanted to talk about this question that's nagging at her. And this is how she put it. Where are the grown-ups in the government? My question is, where are the moderate Republicans? Why are they silent? Where are those in both parties who can demonstrate discernment and maturity of thought and maturity of actions? I do not see them. Trump is counting on the majority to remain silent and for the minority to make his fondest and daily verbalized wishes come true. What do you think, Jack? Mm. Boy, that puts it so well, his daily wishes, which can contradict one day to the next. Well, you know, a member of the uh, GOP National Committee recently told ABC, he said, I don't think there are many, if any, moderates in the GOP today. 
it's kind of an extinct breed. This is a Republican saying this. The fight now is between true conservatives and Trump apologists. Well, maybe the true conservatives, if they're not moderates, are coming through because we don't know what's going to happen. But at least as, as far as things go today, it appears that uh, Jim Jordan is not, at least today, going to be made House Speaker. And that the reason is that uh, people who we used to call moderates, maybe true conservatives, are not voting for him. Uh, after all, there are 18 Republicans who hold uh, representing districts won by Joe Biden. They're under a lot of pressure uh, not to uh, go along with a uh, uh, speaker who's been called a legislative terrorist by, uh, by uh, <clears throat> the former Speaker of the House, Boehner. So maybe the moderates are finally and against all predictions showing up. Mm. Okay, Jack. So that was just a little uh, taste of the responses that you garnered from last week's episode. Give me a heads up. Do you know what we're going to talk about next week? I have not the foggiest <laughs> idea. <laughs> and, 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 and here, <laughs> and, and if I may put it this way, with a gesture to our, our, uh, our Sue in, in California, uh, Events are just too vertiginous for anyone <laughs> for anyone to venture a thought. The whirly gig, the whirly gig of time is going so fast that you just don't know what's going to happen. I would, I will most definitely allow that, Jack, because we barely know what we're going to be doing from hour to hour on the daily program. So, so everybody, this should put you at the edge of your seats. What will Jack want to talk about by the time we get to next week? Definitely tune in when next week Jackpod comes out on Friday. Jack Beatty, On Point News analyst, always uh, eye-opening, always remarkable, and always a joy to talk with you, Jack. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. This is On Point, and as I said, I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, but more accurately, you heard the Jackpod. Thanks very much. Thank you.